0: We pray, Father, for this work in India. I pray that You'd give Deva Sahayam wisdom as he speaks to the leaders of his, this village. We know the grace that would come into that village. We know the faithfulness of this man, his wife, and the believers that are there. We know that it would be good for Christ to be proclaimed and for this community to be affected by believers in their midst. But we also know that in the darkness of sin, that people don't realize this. And I pray that you would work uniquely. We lift our prayers before you as a congregation today, pleading that you hear our cry in their behalf and particularly in his behalf. I pray that you'd give Shambhu Day wisdom as he counsels from afar. I pray that you hear the cries of his heart. But we do pray for Deva Sahayim, and we pray that you would grant him words to speak and a bearing that displays courage and strength with kindness and grace. I pray that you would guide his words, his spirit, and that you would bless in this endeavor. We don't know that you desire for this church to be planted in this village. And so we yield to your sovereign purposes. But if you would be so pleased to work through us and through him and through the days in this situation, we pray that a church might there be planted. We pray that Christ would there be lifted up in a unique way. We ask that those who have never heard of Christ crucified and risen would trust Him as Savior. And we ask that that community would be uniquely blessed by the presence of this assembly. Lord, all of this is in Your hands. We leave it there. We pray, Lord, that You would allow churches to be planted continually throughout India as we support these laborers. But Lord, again, we leave it in Your care. And we pray for the work that we're doing to plant a church here in our region, in the city of Richfield, if it would be your will. We ask that you would raise up laborers who would go, that missionaries would be sent from our church to take the Gospel light into this community. There is light here. There's much light here. And for this we thank you. We also know there's many, many people who have not heard the Gospel message. And we pray that we might be part of continuing to spread that word. And we pray for the churches who surround us in this city, in this state and region, and throughout this world. And ask God that you would raise up and strengthen those who honor your word. Now as we come to that task as a church today to honor the word, we need to honor all of it. And it has been a challenge, a discipline to work our way through this book of Leviticus. But I thank You for what You're doing in this congregation. How You are changing hearts and how you, how You are drawing us to Yourself and showing us the channels that lead us to Christ. We need this background. We need the ancient text. And we need to be reminded of Your character as You reveal Yourself in these texts. Thank You for what You're doing. And we pray that You'll meet with us now and that You will uniquely use us as we labor in the Word, to feed on this truth for the edification of Your people. And we trust, Father, for the salvation of those that will hear the Gospel message and respond. We would trust even today, for today is the day of salvation. We need Your aid by Your Spirit. Give us strength to accomplish this time together in the Word. Through Christ we pray. Amen. I am no enemy of the the University of Minnesota. I just want to say that. I have a son enrolled there. There's a number of you that are graduates from the university. I root with dunderheaded loyalty for our beloved Gophers, year after miserable year. But in recent days, the U of M has put on embarrassing display the disastrous consequences of a culture That is fundamentally opposed to God's law. The secular worldview preaches the laws of self autonomy, self determination, self expression. God's law against drunkenness, God's law against sexual relations outside of marriage. God's law commanding us to treat others as we would have them treat us, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Ridiculous and meaningless. Entirely dismissed. Then in this environment, so averse to God's law, competing self-agendas crash headlong until heads roll. Cries of injustice are hurled in opposite directions with much angry finger pointing. And the issue is not only what did several football players do to a young woman, but how should the authorities punish the wrongdoers? Prosecutors do not press charges against vile behavior because the law, the criminal code, does not allow for it. University officials do impose punishments, but if you'll note the rhetoric, merely to satisfy their own social and political agenda. We inhabit a messy world, and I do not, by any means, envy those tasked with managing such challenges. But the events that have roiled the university and thrust it into the national spotlight remind us that laws have consequences, as do punishments. Law and punishment as consequences. We are also reminded that the only one qualified to rightly order human law and punishment is our Creator. Self-worship always produces faulty laws. And self-worship always produces faulty punishments that conflict with God's creative order. Law and punishment. It's to come together by the grace of God to reflect the nature and the character of our creator. And when we get off of that track, we run into ourselves. And the world falls apart around our ears. Now, it's challenging under God's law, let alone under the faulty laws driven by self-interest. How are we to respond to these events? How are we to look at such matters? Let's say, first of all, we understand that we must submit to the governing authorities as God's sovereignly appointed agents of social order, Romans 13. I would not suggest in light of what has been said thus far that we should therefore do our own thing and forget the laws of the land. God's Word instructs us otherwise. But secondly, it is a reminder that we must align our daily lives as God's people to God's will as supreme. Reflecting our Creator's holiness. The New Testament supports this thesis, but we are channeled toward this end by God's ancient oversight of the land of Israel, the nation of Israel. And we make our way back to Leviticus in chapter 20 today. We'll be looking at chapters 18 through 20 just briefly here, because as we come to chapter 20 of Leviticus, we need to understand its relationship with the two chapters that precede it. These chapters, 18, 19, 20, form a single unit. You'll notice the chapter divisions accurately reflect the three parts of that unit. They each start with the same phrase, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the Lord spoke to Moses saying. And so in that we see this threefold division. And they all work together with the central theme being the holiness of God. The holiness of God, the holiness of His people, emphasized in chapter 19, serving as the pinnacle and positive statement of this theme, we find chapter 19. It stands, in a sense, at the pinnacle of these three chapters, with the other two, 18 and 20, on either side, holding it up and adorning it. Chapter 19 and verse 2, at the end of the verse, we see there this central theme You shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. There is a Creator. There is a Lawgiver. He is pure. He is distinct. And we as His people are to be like Him. We are to reflect Him. We are to live in conscious reflection of who God is. Holiness. As I said, chapters 18 and 20 that stand around chapter 19 and work together with it, develop the negative side of holiness. This is what you're not to be. Chapter 19 is, here's the holy life I want you to live. Here is what you are to be. So look at chapter 18, verses 3 and 5. Here's the negative, the foil, so to speak. Verse 3, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. They're at Mount Sinai. They've left Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. But here they are entering this land, having left that land. You're not to be like these people. Rather, verse 4, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. I am the Lord and this is your life. These words are your life. Cling to them and draw near to the holy God through holy living. Don't be like the world. Don't be like the world. The one you've left, the one to where you're going, don't follow them. Verse 24 of chapter 18. Verse 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things for at having listed these sexual sins. By all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. Verse 25 of 18. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Don't be like them. Over these generations, the Canaanites had grown so wicked that God speaks of these people as that which is refuge. He vomits them out of the land. The land itself had become corrupted by their wickedness. Don't be like them. see the point? Now 19, here's what I want you to be like. This is the holiness you're to reflect in your life. We'll get to the idea of law and Israel and some of that to come, but just looking at it from their perspective, this is what I want you to be. Chapter 19 and verse 18. At the heart of it, at the essence of it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the holy life to which He calls us. You will love your neighbor as you love yourself. And again, because He is the Lord. Then chapter 20, we find that it nearly repeats the content of chapter 18. So the two again, holding up this middle section of the call to holiness positively, chapter 19, 18 and 20 are are parallel to one another. They hold it in place. There is one difference. You might read chapter 20 and say, we just, we just talked about this. This was there right there in 18, just repeating everything all over again. There is one difference. And it's critical. 18 comes out of it this way. Do not do this. Don't be like the people around you. Do not do this. And he lists many examples. This is what is called apodictic law. Don't do this. Chapter 20 is different. Talking about the same things, it says, if you do this, this is the punishment. So don't do it, chapter 18. If you do, chapter 20, this is the punishment. So there's that distinction, and it's important for us as we look at chapter 20 today. And my original plan for this series was to hit chapter 18 through 20 in one week. And I chickened out, honestly. That's a massive challenge. It was a challenge to get as far as we have. But I think there's a message for us here in chapter 20, though it does seem a bit repetitive. It teaches us that the character of God and the blessings of His people are witnessed in His laws, but the character of God is also witnessed In the punishments, when we break those laws, the punishments by which he enforces the laws that he gives are also a reflection of his character and of his purposes for us as a holy people. Chapter 20, Leviticus, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of, the ch- of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. Wow, huge gap between them and us on this, isn't there? We discussed this practice of child sacrifice to the god Molech in chapter 18, suffice it here to say that the Canaanites and the nations surrounding the promised land were known to kill infants. And then to put those infants in the fire and consume their bodies in sacrifice to some supposed God, God Molech. They were willing to take their children in order to get their way and to kill their children. Now, they weren't doing this, obviously, to all their children. But occasionally they would do this. I want my way enough and I think I can turn the mind of Molech to give me what I want if I will lay down the ultimate sacrifice and give this child. Children have always been killed for selfish purposes. This is how it happened in that day. God is so vehemently opposed to such treatment of children and the godless, self-serving motivations that lead one to make such a sacrifice that He demands the death penalty. The people of the land, that is, the common person, not just the priest, but the people of the land, shall stone him with stones. These are the Israelites, not the Canaanites, of course. But as you live in that land... You are to stone this individual. That sounds horrifying to us, and indeed that's exactly the point. Stoning is a horror. The Bible never exactly explains why stoning is chosen as a means of execution in some of these situations, but it certainly was a major deterrent. There was no possibility of suicide by cop sort of thinking with this type of execution. And it certainly involved the community in the execution in a unique way. They actually raised their hand against the offender. You take your child and slit its throat. You put your infant on an altar and burn it to Molech. There's only one outcome as God looks at it, and that is your execution in a very gruesome and painful way. God's serious. And it's quite clear he's saying this isn't supposed to happen. Don't do it. The judgment is severe. Verse 3, I myself will set my face against that man and I will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Moak to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. Now get this, I live among you. I've come to dwell now among you in the tabernacle. I am with you. You don't do this in my presence. And I will set my face. If you don't set your face against this one, I will set my face against this one. God refused to tolerate such wickedness. What a horror in the context of a book written about how we can live in the presence of God. He says, I will not tolerate this. I will set my face against this one. I will cut this one off from the land of the living, providentially if you don't do it. Verse 4, if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Molech and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people. Him and all who follow Him in whoring after Molech, who commit adultery in a sense, spiritual adultery by following this vile practice. Again, God is quite serious. It means God will providentially destroy the wrongdoer in time. It was like a death sentence. It may not hit you today, but God will deal with this. No one will get away with it. Further matters of idolatrous pagan worship are addressed beginning then in verse 6. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, that is, is, appealing to them to contact the dead, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and I will cut off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. This is the point. Don't do these things. Don't contact the dead. Don't join into such ritual, into such religious practice. Why? I'm a holy God. You are to contact the living God through prayer. Not contact the spirits of the dead. Additionally, keep verse eight, my statutes and do them. I am the Lord that who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother; his blood is upon him. This is his 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 penalty rests on his own head. He's brought this down on himself. Now, cursing father and mother is not just in the heat of the moment; one swears at a parent, which is bad enough, but that's not at all what's in view here. The curse here probably involves some sort of magic, some sort we say might, might say put a hex on them, but it is a rebellious curse, a curse that defies authority and it's a curse that basically is seeking to kill the parent. God does not stand for this. So it probably included blasphemy and was the height of relational rebellion. Don't do this. Cursing father or mother brings blood guilt. We then at verse 10 come to punishments for sexual deviance. We we looked at sins about Molach in verse 18, in chapter 18, and then also these sins of incest and the like and various sexual relations that God says here is how a holy people are to live. So he begins with adultery. Verse 10, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, it's, it would be silliness to say neighbors only the person living next door to you. The point of neighbor is anybody that you have contact with. If you commit adultery with someone, the penalty is death. Verse 11, if a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. They've called this down on their own head. Verse 12, if a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Now, this is perhaps a good place in our culture to stop and reflect upon a God who would call for the execution of lawbreakers. And of lawbreakers like this. Adultery. Homosexual activity. We read that children are sacrificed in the fire. We don't understand that. We do more than we probably know, but not in the fire, not a living, breathing child. We don't, whatever, we don't have that going on. The contacting of the dead, I don't think most of us are probably hugely tempted that way. I I hope not, and if so, please talk. We love to counsel and let's let's talk afterwards, but that's maybe not a major temptation. But we get into this range, adultery, homosexual activity, Death penalty? Advocates of homosexual practice love to cite this verse. They know it like they know Genesis 1-1. And they wag their fingers at anybody who would be so weak, so outmoded as to believe that this is God speaking. What they seldom do is note that the same penalty is issued for adultery. The problem with it all is a failure to understand the context. Christians struggle to understand the context of verses in the Bible. We should expect the world's probably going to blow that once in a while. And they look at this in order to make an argument out of it, in order to prove a point. They don't consider the context whatsoever. That's our job. And let's do that. Would we advocate in our church, there's someone who commits adultery, the first thing that comes to our mind is we're going to take them out to the parking lot and stone them? I mean, really? Has that ever crossed anybody's mind? We grieve when adultery is committed. It tears people apart. It tears families apart. It tears a church apart. We don't want anything to do. We don't think about stoning someone. Is that because there's a new God in the New Testament? The Old Testament God was a really mean thing, and now we have this New Testament God of love. No, the New Testament says the same thing that the Old Testament says about homosexuality and adultery. That's not the answer. But what we do is we recognize the temporary nature of the punishments prescribed in the Mosaic law. Context, context, context. It's huge. When you sit the laws of Israel down into the ancient context, you would look at it quite differently. And we'll come back to that as God gives us time here this morning to look in ways in which the law of God was uniquely gracious. And it was extremely fitting for the environment and for that setting. So there are prescriptions here that don't make sense to us anymore. They shouldn't make sense to us. They weren't meant to make sense to us. Not in the sense of practicing them. Remember the context. God's chosen nation, Israel, a theocracy with God as king directly and willing in that economy and environment to directly take the life of individuals, which he has every right to do for any wrongdoing, should he choose. We also understand in context that Jesus has fulfilled the law and he has borne its punishment. In fact, I might have been mentioning some sins that God would say punish with death. And you say, I don't like to hear that. Because that's me. I'm that adulterer. I'm that person who's given myself to homosexual practice. I don't like to hear that what God thinks about that, and it concerns me. This is good news. This isn't bad news. It's convicting news, but it is news to bring to all of us, for all of us to consider that Christ has borne this penalty. He has paid the cost. The cost is death. But you see again how Leviticus channels us certain ways. God is a God of purity. And death must come because of our sin. The good news is that Jesus Christ bore that penalty. So as we read this, we realize we're being channeled by the book of Leviticus to understand God a certain way, understand punishment a certain way, and understand what Christ has done. And then we walk into a world that picks one verse out and says, you hateful, wicked people, how could you love a God like this? And I'd pick out of the scenes of history Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And I'd say, that's how. Because your sin in bed is right there on the cross and He's paying the price. He's not paying the price partially. He's paying it fully. And adulterer's And homosexuals and those who have killed children come to him and say, there, my sin has been fully paid. You don't get there without Leviticus 20. We don't see that without Leviticus 20. We don't see it without this era, this time in which God is preparing his people through history to understand what Christ has done. This is what He's done. When the world picks out one verse and hurls it in your face and say, how could you be so hateful of certain people? Look to the cross. Look to the cross. We're all sinners. But in Christ there is forgiveness of sin. That's the beauty of it. So let's pick up With that understood, verse 14, if a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. There just isn't going to be bestiality among God's people. It's just not going to be. This is the consequence. This is the purity of God speaking. You're not free to do this simply on the basis of interest and consent. This is not done by my people. Says the Lord. Lesser punishments come in verse 17. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother and sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness and he shall bear his iniquity. That is, the community will say this is evil. And will sanction it, will stand up against it, and God providentially sentences this individual. It will come when it's going to come, and it probably is connected somewhat to their response, if they're repentant or not. Verse eighteen: if a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made na- he has made naked her fountain. And she has uncovered the fountain of her blood, both of them shall be cut off from among their people. There's much confusion to us. Some things are lost here, but probably connected to some sort of pagan ritual. Again, cut off from among your people, says, under the sentence of God to be dealt with as he chooses. Verse 19, and that could be death. Could be death later. It depends on how the community responds, it depends on how the individual responds. Verse 19, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless as well. We've talked about these matters more in chapter 18, but here we face the punishments. And then a final call to holiness wrapping up chapters 18 through 20. Verse 22, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them. That the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you, for they did all these things, therefore I detested them. And he was patient with them for generation after generation. Remember the book of Genesis and the promise that for 400 years, God would let the Canaanites grow in, vile, in, in their vile practices. Until they became so corrupt that he is now vomiting them out of his mouth, so to speak. And turning from them. Don't be like them. I am the Lord who has separated you from the people's, verse 24. He separated them from the people's. I'm ahead of myself. Let's go to verse 24 now. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples you'll be going into their land flowing with milk and honey that is a land that supports livestock and the honey of bees but a Hebrew word that also speaks of boiled down juices of any number of fruits there will be rich benefits there in this land but remember you're to be separated from the people that land you're to be separated from the practices that they follow from their moral filth because I'm vomiting them up don't join them Verse 25, you shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. Remember, there's this uncleanness in everyday life. And Israel's never going to be able to forget the holiness of God just in the outday working of everyday life. There's this cleanness, but there's also the cleanness that is moral. That closes verse 24 and enters into the new emphasis here of cleanness in verse 25. Let's just stop and recognize in this word separated, set apart to God or made holy, a fundamental truth about being God's people. Do you know God through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross? Have you come to reconciliation with Him? Do you consider yourself part of the people of God by, his, by this means? Then we are called to be a separated people. This is a fundamental truth. It's who we are. We enjoy a different relationship with God. It's not a national identity as the Israelites We do operate under the laws of this land as well as under the law of God in a unique way. But we are certainly Abraham's people by faith distinct from this world. A call to sexual purity is a distinctive call. The call to sexual purity is a way in which God's people say He is my God. I am His child. This is one way we display that. Let me talk directly to the teens among us, to young adults who are single at this point, to all of our singles. I just ask you pointedly, are you willing to follow Jesus Christ and honor God's law by waiting until you have married a person of the opposite sex for life? Are you willing to wait for that? If in your heart you say, I don't want to wait for that, I want to do my own thing, I want to go my own way, what you're saying, you're, you're tracking down the way that says, God is not my God. If you say, that is what I want, that is what I'm committed to, it's a way of standing up and saying, I follow him. I'm his. I belong to him. This commitment will make you very different. And even if there has been failure in this area in your life, but through repentance and confession of sin, you've sought the forgiveness of Christ and you go back and you say, I'm committed to that path, that will make you different. You will be ridiculed. If not in person, you will be ridiculed by your culture over and over again. But this is one way right now that you can make the crucial choice to live in obedience to Jesus in contrast to the world is to say, I will order my understanding of marriage to the Creator's will. Have you done that? Are you actively doing that? I call you to it. I commend you to it because you cannot do better than God. You cannot. Lay down laws for your life and live with greater joy. It's not possible. It's a fantasy land that our world's playing in, and it results in disaster. Commit yourself to the will of God to enjoy sexual relations within the bond of marriage between a man and a woman that is lifelong. This is our distinctive call. And we shouldn't be shocked when it's distinct. While the text points in that direction in verse 24 and above, in verse 25 we come back to these cleanness laws, which are, uh, of course, not as applicable in the same way to us. But you shall, verse 26, be holy to me, For I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. It's quite clear what the emphasis is here by this point through these three chapters. You're mine. You belong to me. This is good. This is life. This is hope. This is joy. And it means you're going to live a different life. Follow me in this. Trust me in this. 27. One commentator called it strange. I mean, it does just like drop out of nowhere to us in our thinking. Verse 27, a man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. But if we understand how the text is put together, what this is doing is binding up the chapter. And it's saying this is one unit. Here you are and you've dealt with law and punishment. Let me draw out just a couple of ideas here as we think on this text is a long, long ways from us. We don't probably memorize Leviticus 20. But again, there's ideas here and channeling that's taking place here that's so important. We witness in Leviticus 20 the high priority that God places on people and their well-being. Some of that misses us, perhaps. But go back to chapter 19. You will love your neighbor as yourself. There's a key in that. God's law prioritizes, first, above all, God and our relationship with Him. But it also prioritizes family and neighbors by restricting the harshest punishments for the violation of laws pertaining to people. The culture surrounding Israel, you know what they emphasized? You can probably guess financial loss that's where the harshest penalties were assigned again if we we move israel back down into her context not force it into our context our context is is significantly influenced by the life of christ and by his teaching the teaching of christians so-called and in truth throughout the world. But put this down in its time and in its place. This is the thing that would stand out to you. God's really interested in people. It's not money that is all important. It's relationships that are so important. So while Israel emphasizes this through her law, The cultures surrounding her emphasize financial loss. Further, the punishments in God's law fit the crimes with a people-first orientation. They fit the crimes with a people-first orientation. This is unmistakable. Babylonian law. You can find places where someone enters into the home, takes something from someone's house, and leaves, and he's caught. The punishment? Death. There is no such law in the Mosaic, no such directive in the Mosaic law. There's no death for theft. There's punishment for theft, increasing punishment for theft, depending on how uh, one handles it. But this tells us something about our God. Not that he's okay with you stealing things but that there's a difference between stealing something and hurting someone directly. And it begins to channel us. For instance, there is a direct application here for us in Christian homes. In Christian families that are tracking with God's character and following His teaching, in Christian families there should be greater punishment for, let's say, striking a sibling than for breaking a possession. I always feel a little guilty when I talk about breaking possessions and going light on it because I broke a lot. (laughs) Ask my mother when I was a kid. I don't know what it was with that, but I really had a problem. Part of it had to do with ball play in the living room, but we won't go into that. But seriously, how does a parent respond when that... Elf on the shelf lands into a thousand pieces. How does that parent respond when there's an attack against another person? When a Christian dad laughs off a teenager's lying in disrespect of his mother, but then dad explodes in anger when that teen scratches the car, a message has been sent. What's all important is not the truth, And God, not your mother, what's all important is my car. We have to be thinking, how do we reflect the character of God? And I don't think what we do is a kid scratches the car and we laugh that off. But we have a different kind of conversation when possessions are ruined foolishly and when someone is assaulted relationally. The message that God sends in His Word is that people matter. And these sexual laws put down against the nations is also so revealing. The ancient home was a place of sexual predatory. Is that a word? People were after people sexually all the time in the context of a family. Someone would set their interest on someone who was of a lower status in the family and there wasn't very much to keep them away from them. And this created a cauldron of sexual promiscuity and a place for predators. God's law descends into this, and if you begin to work out the implications of it, he eliminates that from the home. It's not there because it's punishable. Israel exercised capital punishment for murder because man is made in God's image. Israel's neighbors allowed monetary compensation for murder. So take a life will make you pay money. Take, somebody takes your money, you can take their life. That says something about the lawgiver in those pagan environments. In Israel, a man died for his own sin. He erects a building. He cheats. The building collapses. It kills the daughter in the home. He can go back to his home and give his daughter in death to pay for his crime. None of that. In God's law, the sinner dies for his or her own sin, if that's necessary. So much more could be said about the wisdom of God's law, such as the superiority of the enforcement of God's law by local elders who knew the people well. There's no police forces, virtually no anonymity in that setting. Whole communities involved in enforcement. We have to read that into these laws as well. And the punishments were almost never incarceration, almost never Rather, a person compensated his victim or worked off his debt. What a different world it would be if those who were violating the law of God and society were put to work to accomplish something of good and value until their debt was paid and they could be then forgiven and restored. There was no government feeding people and housing people and just keeping them out of circulation. I'm not saying we could do that as a nation. But knowing what's going on here is so interesting. Leaving all that aside, there was a decided beauty and wisdom of God's law and attendant punishments. What we also witness here, secondly, in Leviticus 20, is the severity of God as father and judge. And this really strikes us, doesn't it? Neglectful or abusive parents do not teach their children rules. They're not interested in that. Loving parents teach their children the difference between right and wrong. They teach their children rules so they will know how to live wisely. They love them enough to say, don't do that and do this. But far fewer parents in our day are willing to make those rules much more than earnest suggestions. I'll prod you, I'll press you, I'll encourage you, I'll try to remind you, I hope you can get around to doing this. God our Father issues punishment. That is, it's not only here's what not to do, here's what to do, but when you don't obey me, there are consequences. A parent who wants to follow the example of our Heavenly Father will not only teach right behavior... but will discipline wrong behavior. Now, when we see God in action here, we've got to remember God is king of a nation and no parent is king of their, of their home. So there's going to be a lot of differences. Please understand. But as we pan back from this passage, it reminds us that God is a father who cares lovingly for his children, but he also is a righteous judge who will in the end punish all wrongdoing. We're channeled to see that here. He is one who stands for right. And it's not by way of suggestion. It's by way of judgment ultimately. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You will stand before that judgment seat as a breaker of God's law. He has said here, we're not under this law as such, but he has said here as he says elsewhere that we are to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. He has called us to the task of loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And there isn't anybody here that's going to stand before Christ and before his throne and say, I did that ideally. I loved my neighbor as myself. Dan does not. I don't love my neighbor like I love myself. I'm working on it. I'm striving. I know I need to head there. I know that's the holiness of God and his call upon my life. And I know I don't do that over and over again. I break the law of God. And you do too. And I don't love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I love him and I'm striving to come to know him better, and I love to walk in the presence of God and fellowship with him, but I don't love him like that. The lack of commitment in my life to do what is right is a clear evidence that I don't love God with all my heart. And you don't either. But remember the scene to which we point? It's Christ on the cross. There will be a judgment. And I can suffer His wrath as I stand before His throne As Paul warns the Corinthians, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Here you are standing before the throne of Christ. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There we stand, violators of His law, There is another way. And this is why we gather and start this meeting today with singing. It's for this reason. There is that cross. There is that Lamb of God dying to pay the full punishment of our sin for us. You can stand before Christ someday, and I believe you will. You may not believe it. I'm confident you will. And I know I will. And when you stand there, you can stand there in your own righteousness and say, here's the good I've done outweighs the other people you're mad at, so I should be okay. And you are going to stand before a holy God that has never sinned and finds your sin such that it's nauseating and He's going to vomit you out of His presence because you stand there in your self-righteousness. There's this second option. In His grace, this God who gives laws, this God who gives punishments, cares for us and loves us and reaches out to us and says, if you will see yourself as a sinner and you will repent of your sin and put your trust and confidence that Christ paid the penalty for you, I will receive you not because of your merits, but because of His. And I'll give you His standing in my presence. That's grace. That's the God of Leviticus 20. A God of grace who says, I've got to get your attention here. I am a God of holiness. And therefore, I am a God who judges sin. But as he gets our attention, he starts this book with a sacrifice. Dying in our place. Dying to pay the penalty of our sin, fulfilled ultimately in Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You want to be free of sin? There's a way. Christ is it. Trust Him. Give Him your sin. He'll take it. He'll remove it. And He'll give you standing in His presence. And a life of joy and holiness here and now. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for Your goodness to us in Christ. And pray that You'd meet us in our sin. And that there might be some here among us today who says, I need forgiveness. I have no confidence in it. If I stood before God, I don't know what I'd do. I have nothing to to give. Lord, may they run to you today and to your mercies. Help us to this end. And those who know you as Savior, we thank you and praise you in our Savior's name for your saving grace.